Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Welcome to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom, the podcast where I speak with people who see the wrong in the world and are driven to make it right. Today I'm speaking with a remarkable woman who was literally born into the social justice movement. Her parents met in the wake of one of the bloodiest one-day encounters between Americans since the Civil War, the infamous Attica prison uprising. I think that Attica was definitely a moment in which people could see that, you know, that famous line, we are men, we are not beasts, and we will not be beaten and driven as such. I think most people think of men in prison, men and women in prison as, you know, outcasts and throwaways. And what they were saying was that they were willing to die that day for the right to be treated as human beings. Um, And it was a powerful declaration. Her father, Jomo Joka Omowale, was one of the leaders of that movement. And her mother, Elizabeth Gaines, was a member of the legal team that later defended him and the other Attica brothers. Growing up with a father who was in prison for much of her young life has driven her to be a fierce advocate for the incarcerated and for their children. Imani Davis, right now on Righteous Convictions. Welcome back to Righteous Convictions. Today's episode, I'm interviewing uh, Superwoman, actually. <laughs> I'm going to embarrass her right off the bat. She is the daughter of an incredible man who endured, uh, <laughs> who endured more than almost anybody could ever imagine. And the fact that he stayed alive throughout is miracle number one. Um, but we're going to get into all of that and the work that she's doing today which is transformative and has impacted the lives of so many people that it's just, um, it's just inspiring. So anyway, Imani, welcome to Righteous Convictions. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So let's, let me just start with you growing up as the daughter of your father. Tell us about your earliest memories and about your father's incredible journey. 
So I can't say that I remember it, but the first time my father held me, I was six weeks old. It was on Rikers Island. Um, and it's actually a funny story that my mom ended up suing the New York City Department of Corrections for the right to breastfeed on Rikers Island uh, because my dad was being held at that moment. He was fighting, which I'm sure if you looked him up, you would see that one of his earlier cases um, the year I was born was an accusation that he had killed two New York City police officers um, in Brooklyn. And so he was on trial for the first two years of my life. So I was born a month after the actual incident happened. And then for the first two years of my life, my dad was on trial in New York City. And t- after two hung juries and an acquittal, he came home. So I was around two and a half, just under three when he first came home. And then he wasn't home long. Uh, by the time I was five years old, he had Im- been involved in another case um, and then went underground for a year. So when I was five, my dad was then 10 most wanted on the FBI list. He was underground for a year, was captured when I was six years old, and then sentenced to 107 years uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, where he would then be incarcerated for the next 25 years. Um But you did ask about his story. So that wasn't his first interaction with the police. Uh, My dad was one of the Attica brothers who organized the rebellion in 1971 um, and was the minister of defense for the Black Panther Party here in the New York chapter. And so, you know, he had been politicized way before I was born. um, And I think much of the early years were, (laughs) I don't know that I was aware of who he was other than just daddy, but I was made aware quite quickly by the time I was, you know, school age and FBI agents were following me everywhere. uh, We knew that we were somewhat different. Well, and let me just read a little bit of his bio. We're talking about the man Jomo Joka Omowale, who was born Cleveland Davis. The name came from Jomo Kenyatta, who was the leader of the Malmo uprising, and Omowale as I understand it, is Yoruba for, quote, the child has come home. And your dad was born the son of sharecroppers in 1942, North Carolina, right? (laughs) It's a strange sentence to even say, but he grew up in Virginia and was, you know, imprisoned on and off starting as a teenager for 10 years. And then when he came to New York, of course, he began going to rallies, meeting people, listening to Malcolm X, and became connected with the Black Panthers. And I want to pause right there. Imani, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and mischaracterization of what and who the Black Panthers were. Can you tell us about that? I would love to, actually, because the work that I do now, the the tagline that we use is from the Black Panther Party and one that most people don't know. But one of the original taglines from the Panthers was serve the people, body and soul. And I think people focus on power to the people and don't identify that it was all power to all people, that the Black Panther Party um, was designed as an offering, much like the Omawali Project, that it was a response to a need in a community in communities of color. Um, I think that one of the misconceptions is that it was the association with black radicals in this country is always associated with violence as opposed to um, identifying them as protectors of communities. And I think one of the things that my dad always made very clear and all of the brothers that I grew up around was that, you know, they were not violent uh, by nature, but that they were responding to the constant perpetration of violence in their communities, but that that was a very small part of what they did. They were very focused on education 
for children and adults. They were very focused on healthy food for communities, access to health care, better living conditions. Um, the, the interaction with the police and access to government um, supports was like secondary to what the main focus was. The main focus was really bringing in awareness about the needs of Black people and communities of color in this country and um, the marginalization of them overall. So your dad ultimately became, after being, you know, badly beaten and put in jail, after being charged with the attempted robbery of a police officer, he was eventually transferred from prison to prison, uh, becoming a leader of the Panthers and ending up in the notorious Attica prison. Now, that's where things really start to spiral, right? Because it's we just had the 50th anniversary of the Attica uprising. There's, of course, a movie out now about it, um, which I encourage people to watch. Tell us about Attica, your dad's role at Attica, and how the riot affected his life and yours and your family's. So I think what's important is that people often um, focus on Attica, but don't know that, that the issue kind of began in Auburn State Prison shortly before Attica, in which uh, my father and other leaders there had organized a Black Solidarity Day event in the prison in which they were going to stop work. And there was a whole programming. And then there was kind of a big um, issue with the administration there. And they were all put in the box that day um, in Auburn. It was because of that event that those same leaders were transferred into Attica State Prison. And very shortly after that, once they kind of were let out into population and started seeing the conditions in Attica. That's what began um, what we would then see as that standoff uh, beginning um, September 9th. And so, you know, it's interesting. My dad really never, ever wanted to talk about Attica. Uh, We were aware of it because it's how my parents met. And because Growing up on visits, one of my favorite things to do was to rub my hands across the inner part of my father's bicep muscle. Um, I called it gravel. I didn't know until I was in my 20s that that was actually buckshot. But um, the way that it healed was almost like this very silky, smooth skin, and you could feel these little bumps under it. And it was just part of a visit. You know, you just want to be connected to your parent and hold them and be held by them. And I just love to rub that skin. It was much later that I would find out from my mom kind of what happened. I think it has deeply informed my work because I don't think that any of us fully understood. I think Stanley Nelson's film comes close to depicting it, the trauma that would have been endured by them that day, uh, the day of the retaking, and then the days of reprisals that followed. But I think it's important that my father really, although he suffered, I think, greatly, and I saw it much later in his life, the impact of that. He really never wanted to discuss it. I think for him, it was the equivalent of what people would think about with Vietnam, right? Like, I, I feel like it the same. He had a very similar response as people do after war, in which he didn't like to talk about it. Um, he did suffer night terrors that happened, I think, right after Attica. My mom told me I was, you know, not even born then. Um, and I saw it later in his life. And we talked a little bit about, um, he would only describe the smell. And that was the only part that he shared was like the smell that day. And I think, you know, he was talking about the combination of gunpowder and burning flesh. And I think one of the things that's most important about what he wanted us to hold about Attica was how many things changed in prisons. I think people look at it so many years later, 50 years later, and they're like, we still have these terrible prison conditions. Like, what did we really accomplish? 
But many people don't know that what we accomplished are like all of the programs that are now inside of state prisons. The fact that men and women can get bilingual male, like male in other languages that, you know, access to different kind of medical care, that there are many things that have happened that have impacted prison conditions because of that. And also, I think it has humbled administrations to understand that they really have to be very thoughtful about how far they push their population because they are ruling prisons with the permission of the population. And I think that Attica was definitely a moment in which people could see that, you know, that famous line, we are men, we are not beasts, and we will not be beaten and driven as such. It was a powerful declaration of a group of men who I think most people think of men in prison, men and women in prison as, you know, outcasts and throwaways. And what they were saying was that they were willing to die that day for the right to be treated as human beings. Um, and it was a powerful declaration. And I think the, the spirit of that is one that we were definitely raised with uh, and honored his contribution for his life, definitely. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is super excited and honored to have the support of a great organization like Galaxy Gives. Galaxy Gives leads the philanthropic efforts of the Novogratz family. They invest in organizations, campaigns, and leaders who are directly impacted by and working to dismantle the current punitive justice system. Galaxy Gives also builds power for the communities most harmed by mass incarceration and forges transformative solutions for responding to that harm. They envision a society where the structural barriers created by racism, poverty, and inequality are no more, where instead all people have the dignity, freedom, and rights needed to thrive. So now we get to that fateful day, September 9th, when a spontaneous uprising broke out and a number of guards were taken hostage and the inmates put together a list of living conditions, uh, improved living conditions demands that would seem to be pretty easy to accommodate had the government cared at all, right? I'm talking about religious freedom, an end to mail censorships, phone privileges, um, and amnesty. This is an interesting one. Amnesty and safe passage to a, quote, non-imperialist country for anyone who desired it. That one I could see the government going, oh, you know, but still, okay, they could have given, they could have reached a compromise had they wanted a peaceful solution, but they didn't want a peaceful solution. Governor Rockefeller refused to get involved personally. And... Then what happens next? Well, I'm going to turn it over to you because you obviously know a lot more about this than I do. And I want to learn. Um, I mean, what happened was that there was a lot of double talk, right? There was, you know, folks coming in. Um, I, I think one of the things that the Stanley Nelson film does well is shows the fact that they had access to the information that was being shared in the news. And so they were having negotiators come in and kind of act like they were willing to work with them and that there was a process that they were going to follow. And then they were going on, on the news and basically saying, you know, we absolutely don't care. Like we're not going to honor what they want and this is ridiculous. And, you know, we're going to take back the prison. And 
I think, you know, many historians believe and folks that were there believe that had they just had a little bit more time, that they actually would have been able to come to an agreement, that they feel that it wasn't just the force that was brought in, but really that the biggest problem was how quickly the government escalated the situation there. And then the just kind of the rampant brutality that that was part of the take back of the prison. Actually, my father was most severely harmed after the shooting had stopped. So they then went back in and went to go make sure that they had found the people that they knew that they were looking for. And so my dad was not, you know, because he was defense minister, my father was actually guarding the door of D block, um, which would become part of why he was the highest indicted person probably ever in the history of the United States following the uprising, but he was guarding the door. So he was never on camera. Um, However, when the snipers began taking over the prison he was shot directly. They were trying to get him. And they told him actually when they were down in the ground with him that it was because of his raincoat that they didn't get him, that they were trying. And that is why I felt that thing on the inside of his arm because it kind of hit his slicker. They couldn't tell where his body was. And so dum-dum bullets is what they were using. Um, and he was shot with a rifle and it it hit between his arm and his chest and kind of tore both of those things open. After the overtaking, they then would come in and they would shoot him, I think five or seven more times in the back. Um, and neck. And they called him by name. They knew exactly who he was. Uh, And they then put him in the dead pile. It was actually the National Guard who came in and saved him and several other people who had been mortally wounded. The the dead pile. Let's just pause on that for a second. Um, And so this operation, right, which is something that we would grimace if we saw it in, in combat, but it was carried out against, well, defenseless, uh, not just prisoners, but also guards, involved a level of brutality that is shocking to this day. And I'm talking about, first they came in with helicopters, right? Dropped tear gas. And then state police and correction officers stormed in with guns, fired over 3,000 rounds into the haze of tear gas, right? They, They didn't care who they hit obviously, because, and we know that they hit a lot of guards. Um, I mean, worse than just shooting, though, what they were saying is keep your hands up and walk towards an officer and you won't be harmed. And as they did that, they were shot and killed. They, they were they, they were told to surrender. And then as they did that, they were being shot. So from the 9th of September through the 13th, 43 people were killed, including... 29 inmates, as well as 10 hostages, and then obviously four other people. Prison guard William Quinn was badly beaten and thrown from a second-story window, and then three other prisoners were killed early in the riot. Um, and it was in the in the aftermath that, well, <laughs> that your mom and dad met. So from, from this chaos, death, and destruction comes comes beauty. So how did your parents meet? It's an unbelievable story. I'd rather hear you tell it though. I mean, it's funny because there's aggravation at the beginning of it. My mother was a new, um, like she, I think she was, had just graduated from Syracuse law or she may have still been a law student. And so she was actually part of the lawyer that she was working under was doing the investigations, talking to the Attica brothers because they were beginning to build this defense because not only were they beaten, but obviously they were then indicted on, I mean, so many 
charges. It's just unbelievable. And so that began this kind of the legal defense for the Attica brothers. My dad then would split off later. And I'm sure you've seen all that. And that's not really important. But one of the things that was happening was that my mom had to travel all over the state to interview other people um, to get their statements about what had happened because afterwards people had been, you know, obviously they had separated folks and put them in different facilities. And every place she would go, they would say, do you have a note or a message from Jomo? We're not going to speak to you unless we have um, a note from Jomo. And so here my mother is driving all over New York state, which as you know, you've been in these prisons, they're all over the place. They're in the middle of nowhere and she's going and people refuse to speak to her. And so by the time she gets to Jomo, she's just agitated. Um, like who is he and why do I have to get his permission? So she goes into that initial meeting and is just, you know, I think a little indignant and like, I don't know who you are, but nobody will talk to me. And by the end of that time, I think they were together almost four hours in that initial interview. The story, as my grandmother told it was she calls me and she says, I just met the man I'm going to marry. And as you might imagine, my grandparents were not thrilled to know that he was in prison had just survived the Attica riot and, uh, you know, but that is how they met. That wasn't their dream for their beautiful daughter. <laughs> that was not, that was not the dream who had just graduated from Syracuse law. It was not, um, she would then join the legal defense team and then they would, you know, that's it's history from there. Um, he didn't come home for some time, but that's why they, he comes home, they get married a couple years later, I'm born. But before I even could get here, he then has that interaction with the New York City police, which, you know, is all related, right? I mean, it's all related. They knew exactly who he was, you know, all of the things. The person who he was with, his code of, his his best friend, Dalu, who was with him during that shooting um, in 1978, was also in Attica with him. So, and he was killed by the police that night. Um, so, you know, it, it followed him for sure. So... The story of the shootout, we can't gloss over that either. So tell us about that. And then I want to get, we could talk all day, but I want to get to the work that you're doing now to help other people who go going through the same types of things that you went through is, um, I mean, there's that great saying, Imani, you know, that uh, about the, I, I love the people who walk through the fires of hell and come out carrying a bucket of water for those who were left behind or, or whatever. I, I'm, I'm missing it up. But I think that really describes your dad and it describes you as well. Thank you. Um, actually, the link to that to that event in New York City uh, in 1978 actually is a perfect segue to our work. So my father, in, in being captured, once he was uh, taken into custody, the medics were forced out of the back of the ambulance. My father was handcuffed to the gurney in the back of the ambulance. And the police who had responded to the event then broke every bone in his face with their boots and billy clubs. Um, and so it was actually a severe assault. We don't really know how he survived. I actually had my mother find the medical records for me a year, almost two years ago now when I started dreaming about Omawali because because of what I understood at the towards the end of his life about a traumatic brain injury that at the time was never really dealt with. And because he was kind of talking within 12 hours and other things, I think people really underestimated the impact that it would have on him. But, you know, he had many symptoms of that assault for the rest of his life. He had blurred vision, terrible, terrible headaches, uh, and other things that, you know, I would have never known because he would have never complained about. But it really did inform I think the work that I would end up doing because when he came home in 2009, finally, after 25 years, 
Within 24 hours of his release, he was in very different shape than he had been in the entire time we had been with him. Um, Agitations like memory slippage, deep confusion, aggression. We just started seeing all of these things that we had no idea what we were looking at. And what we were looking at was early onset of of dementia, but as a result of the brain injury from 1978. And so they were not able to tell us anything about what we were going to see because his brain was in such different shape because it was caused by an injury, not because it was the natural progression of age. And so I would care for him, me and my family in different ways for the next 10 years. And then uh, in the fall of 2017, um, my dad transitioned here in my home. I cared for him for the last 18 months of his life at home, which was a gift You know, I promised my dad many, many years ago after nine parole denials, I promised my dad, like, you will die free and you will die with me. And that was a promise that I was able to make him. We converted my dining room, which has the best light in the house. um, And we cared for him here uh, until until he left his body. And I'll tell you when you say it's like his resilience, you know, my dad did not know how to die. So he went longer than almost any human can without food or water. Um, every day the nurse would be like, it's going to be today. And my little six-year-old who was helping take care of him was like, nope, not today, mom, not today. And so he just kind of kept going. And that was really interesting. But, you know, when I look back at what caused the death of my father, it was unhealed trauma. That's, that's what it was. It was emotional. It was physical. And the work of the Omawali Project was really a response to honoring the fact that there is a condition that trauma creates in the body that ultimately creates disease and pathology. And that for me, I just had a fury about the fact that not only are you impacting the living conditions every day of people of color in this country, but you are actually generating disease. You are generating life without joy, um, that there's a level of corruption of the existence of Black people in this country that, that that's being exploited by the conditions that we live under. And I just fundamentally reject that we're going to lose another generation to that. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. So tell us more about the work of the Omawali Foundation, how people can get involved, and what the Galaxy Gives Fellowship means to you and to the people that you're striving to uplift. 
Okay. Well, first, I want to honor that I took almost 10 years from when I was doing the advocacy as a child of a prisoner to doing Omawali to like do events for nonprofits, right? I took a real break. And I think that I have to honor that I took that break because I don't know that I would have been able to circle back to do this work had I not really focused on my own repair because it was heavy doing the work the way that I did it, coming into the work at 14 years old in rooms with all adults, right? I was the youngest child ever to join the Child Welfare League of America Advisory Council. I was 16. Um, I was traveling all over the country, like just carrying this charge, like that there were kids that were involved when you were sentencing people to a million years, that there was an impact on family and community. And I needed to take a minute. So the Omawali Project is mostly like we serve everyone. Absolutely. We want to be able to work with everyone. But our focus actually is folks who have committed themselves to the fight for racialized justice in this country, Um, whether that's through the criminal justice system or you know, any other form of race equity or food equality or environmental justice, we don't care. But my focus is really focusing on those who have dedicated their life to service the way my dad did, the way I did, the way my mom did. Because I think that there's a trend that we've seen many times, and I grew up, this is probably the third or fourth wave of it, in which we respond to horrible things happening and, you know, conservative action happening by just overfunding the movement without really investing in the actual people who have dedicated their lives to do this work. And not really honoring that, like, that inner drive, that thing that I have that I just couldn't not do this was caused by a lot of harm. Like, the same drive that makes me great at it and makes somebody like, you know, Johnny Perez or Bianca Tylik or, you know, there's so many that people that I could name, incredible folks. That same drive is rooted in people's harm. And so for us, Omawali is really about how do we begin to nurture and nourish that harm so that folks can do the work that they're called to do in a way that's not re-traumatizing to them and in a way in which they actually are of service to the communities that they want to be serving. And so part of it is to be able to hold philanthropy accountable, to not just be tokenizing Black leadership and overfunding them and then putting them out there on these stages in which they don't feel permission to fall apart and to manage what they're feeling inside, but also helping folks in the movement. I had to learn like you first after me, right? It's like I had to get that being a sacrificial lamb actually wasn't going to win this race. And that as Toni Morrison said, the very true function of racism is distraction. That I had had this life that was not joyous. You know, I was not a happy child. I was not a happy teenager. I was not a happy 20 something. Um, I was kind of always in battle with systems. I was deeply hurting inside. And that's how my peers are. And, you know, I feel like, yes, we are called to do this incredible work and we are dedicated to our people and we deserve to have rich, full lives in which we take vacations with our loved ones and can afford to have health care and can afford to see a massage therapist or an acupuncturist, that, that, that this is not supposed to be a life sentence of pain, um, that we really are special right? That we've dedicated our lives to serving others and that there should be a reward for that in this life. And so that really is the work of Omawali. You know, we do actual work with the body and trauma. There's also like a series that I do in which I help people kind of um, create systems in their lives that, that support their overall well-being around rest and boundary and how to deal with vicarious trauma and how to manage grief. I'm a death doula by passion. And so my dad was one of many people that I helped transition, my grandmother before him, and then other folks that I've assisted. And so, you know, the ability to die with dignity and grace and supporting families. And as we're confronting mass death over the past two years, it's really important that folks understand how to build 
a healthy relationship with death and loss and know how to use it, you know, in a way that kind of can generate change, not to just be eaten up by it. That is beautiful and beautifully said. And for our listeners who are inspired to show their support, please make a donation. You can do it through the Legal Action Center and earmark it for the Omawali Project. And we'll put all those links in the bio just to make it easy for you. And now, Imani Davis, we have a tradition that I personally love here on Righteous Convictions, which is that we always close the show in two ways. First of all, it's a question. It's called the magic wand question. And the magic wand question works like this. If I had a magic wand, which I wish I did, and if I could grant you one wish, which I wish I could, what would that wish be? What would be your one wish? If I had one wish, it's that this country would have a different relationship with incarceration, that we would just find an alternative to holding people in cages. Amen. That'd be my wish. That's a good one. Um, And we share it. And then our final segment of the show. First of all, thank you again for being here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we close out with something I call Words of Wisdom. It works very simply. I uh, turn off my microphone, kick back in my chair with my headphones on, and probably my eyes closed, and just listen for anything else you want to share with me and our amazing audience. Um, I think what I want to share with our audience is the premise of Omawali and the words of my dad, one of my father's famous quotes was when he came home, I was free years ago. They just turned my body loose. And I think that what I would want people to really hold close to themselves is that if a man could find freedom for himself, actualize the feeling and experience of liberation in a cage, then what might be possible for us out here? Um, And Yeah, that, I hold on to that. The fact that he was able to experience liberation in bondage and that what that means is that we're able to experience it now. And I know it doesn't look like that with our government and the way that things are going. But that liberation is an experience to be felt in the body and one that we can actualize. And I want us to hold on to that. Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Jeff Clyburn, Lila Robinson, and Kevin Wardus. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.